Hey, Chris Manning here from the Locked on Cavs podcast. Coming up on today's show, we have Ben Golliver from the Washington Post, from the Locked on NBA podcast, from the Open Floor podcast over at Sports Illustrated. We're talking about his new book, Bubble Ball, The Fight to Save the NBA Season. That is available at all your favorite book retailers by Indie. If you're so inclined, please and thank you. But Ben and I talked about the Cavs. We talked about his book. We talked about this NBA season. We talked about life covering the league in the bubble. It was a very fun conversation with who I think is, frankly, one of the best NBA writers covering the league right now. So that's all coming up today. Evan will be back with me tomorrow to recap Cavs Suns and talk about whatever else is going on uh, with the Cleveland Cavaliers at that point in time. And for all we know, like Zydrin Zolgowskis and Juan Wagner could be signed to contracts to the team. Who freaking knows? Also want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the app and join Evan and I this week on Wednesday evening to get in on the action. Locker Room, changing the way we talk about sports. Now, here's today's show with Ben Golliver from the Washington Post. Cavs need a three. Sexton works on Irving, trying to get loose. He'll fire. He knocks it down. Osmond steps into a long-distance jumper. Allen to the bucket. He crushes it home. Off the Garland for three. He knocks it down. Drummond toward Valanciunas. Finds a cutter in a Coro, and a Coro thunders it home. By Kyrie. Sexton got it back. Nance for the tie. He it down. Love hands it off the Sexton feed. Cavaliers by seven. And uh, Cleveland, this is for you. All right, joining me now is the one, the only Ben Golliver. You may hear him on Thursdays, Locked In NBA, putting up a David Locke. You probably know him from the Washington Post or the Open Floor podcast and at a bunch of other places. Ben, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Great to be here. Yeah, so and the other reason he's here is to talk about his upcoming book, or it's soon out soon, blah, blah, blah. I got it in the mail, my preview copy in the mail a couple of days ago. I got to flip through it a little bit. It's, uh, I haven't finished it, but it's been very interesting. But I want to start just a random place here with you with being in the bubble, because I distinctly remember you tweeting um, a, a video of your, like when you had to quarantine in the bubble. And tell me if this is wrong, if you're like walking around your hotel room to just like get, st- is, is that accurate? Am I misremembering that? No, you got it, man. I mean, it's it's funny. I've been writing about the NBA since 2007, but I feel like this has become my legacy. I mean, I was the, the, the uh, hamster on the hamster wheel kind of going back and forth. I mean, when we first got to the bubble, there was a lot of just concern and confusion. How are the rules going to work? What was life going to be like? I mean, for me personally, I was pretty nervous going there just from a health standpoint. And the first thing they did was throw us into hotel rooms for an entire week. And basically the only uh, time we got to come out was to do our COVID tests and they'd swab our nose and then they throw us back in there. So all the meals were prepackaged. My window of my hotel room didn't even open. And, you know, I was like on a big uh, health kick, you know, during the pandemic, just because I had more free time and I was trying to get myself into better shape. So I was sitting there in my hotel room, just like bored out of my mind, kind of going a little stir crazy. So I would just walk, yeah, eight steps each direction back and forth across the hotel room. I think the longest I made it in a day was like eight or nine miles, which, you know, it's, it sounds pretty insane to do that eight steps at a time. But, um, I think a lot of people identify with that video in one form or another, just because we were all kind of in pretty heavy lockdowns at that point. And uh, there was really no end in sight to the pandemic. So I think I was sort of the, uh, you know, kind of the totem, not only for the bubble itself and, and how weird it was, but also just for everybody adjusting to this weird new life we've been living since last March. 
What what was reporting from the bubble like when you were obviously there? You, you're probably running into people walking around the campus and stuff, but it is still very, you know, as you mentioned, like peak pandemic, first kind of one of the first real things that society seemingly was like a lot of people weren't pleased, even though there's obviously all the protocols in place. Um, like, like what was it just like being a reporter in that environment when things are so much different than your normal playoff run where like you get to in the locker room after games, you get to run into people in the arena. Like it's just it's just from out from the outside. It just seemed like a very different experience. Yeah, it was probably the most challenging and rewarding experience of my entire, you know, reporting career. I mean, I was there for 93 days, uh, you know, because it was a single site location and I could cover all of the playoff series simultaneously. So I actually went to every single playoff game from the second round on for every series, which like in a normal year, even a guy like Jimmy Goldstein, who's got the private jet and he's flying around from series to series, like even he wouldn't be able to do that. Right. So it was this incredible blessing. And at the same time, it was just nonstop. And it, it looked, it was really heavy too. I mean, we're talking about a presidential year, or you know, with major social justice activism going on. A number of uh, you know police shootings, or or the the ruling in the Breonna Taylor case came down while we were there. So it was just a very very intense experience. It was kind of sensory overload. You know, for me, like while I was there, and I'll vouch for a lot of the players who were talking about how tough it was. You know, I put on weight. I was sleeping pretty terribly. My anxiety and stress levels were, were up. I was feeling the isolation, you know, 3,000 miles away from my parents. Um, you know, it was an intense deal. There, there's kind of no way around it. And I think the, the writers who were there, it's kind of become this alumni club, you know, where we sort of, you know, look back on it. There's some fond memories for sure. And there were some great memories along the way, like, you know, getting sprayed with champagne by the Lakers when they won the title. And, LeBron kind of dousing me just because I was one of the only people who was even in the building, right? I mean, he's kind of going after all the media members because there was nobody else to celebrate with. So yeah. there's great memories that way. Um, but also, you know, it was it was unbelievably challenging. And the reason why I wanted to write the book, it just felt like it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, right? It, it felt like the kind of thing where even when it was done, we all kind of realized, like, they're not going to want to do this again unless they absolutely have to. It was just, you know, too hard on everybody. And, um, you know, it was also coming at a time for the NBA, one of the most important years in the history of the league between the Hong Kong controversy, Kobe Bryant's death, David Stern's death, the shutdown, and then the Disney World comeback. I mean, I think 2020 is going to go down as, as one of those kind of, you know, peak moments in terms of importance for the league's history. So you add it all up. I wanted to write the time capsule perspective of it. Did you know when you were there that this is like you were going to do this? Like, did you figure out while you were there that's like, okay, this is I'm going to do this book. I'm going to do it in this way. Or or is this something you have to start like re-reporting almost or going back into your notes or whatever it is once you, once you're out of the bubble and you and you get a little time to decompress a little bit? So right about that same time, you were laughing at me going back and forth in my hotel room. You know, I was writing kind of first person essays for the Washington Post about what the experience was like. And I was we were getting just bombarded with interest from around the globe. Um, you know, a lot of the questions were just like, do you think you're going to die? Basically, it was kind of what it boiled down to. You know, there was a lot of uh, rubberneckers and just morbid curiosity in the entire experiment because, you know, phrase it, a lot of people were thinking this might blow up in their faces. This could be really bad. And so right about that time, I was, you know, just getting a lot of interest from different corners and uh, an agent reached out and uh, the Abrams Press, my publisher, reached out. And, uh, you know, we kind of put it together and decided that it would be a good book. So I knew within about the first month when I was down there that I would be writing the book kind of going forward. But in terms of the actual writing process, I didn't start writing until I had left the bubble in late October so that I had a little bit of distance, the ability to reflect. And I was kind of back home and comfortable here in Los Angeles. But I used all my contemporaneous accounts like to kind of put the, the book together. So, you know, Twitter, the stories I had written. 
uh, my iPhone camera roll and video roll, which just had thousands of photos, um, you know, from the bubble. And a number of those pictures are actually in the book, um, as, as well as, you know, text message conversations with friends. I mean, podcasts that I had taped while I was there. You know, I use all that stuff to kind of help put the book together and make sure I got the chronology right and that I hit the, the big points. As far as like a notes person, are you like a like a like a Google Doc person, or are you like a like a notebook person? Like, how are you taking notes in the bubble? It's just like someone who thinks about this stuff way too much. Like, I I vary between the different methods. I will do them like in, in chicken scratch format, or sometimes I'll just type everything out. Or which which kind of format are you kind of leaning on as you're as you're actually there and kind of trying to document things, even if it's just you know like what's going on in the game itself. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually very mobile heavy at this point. Um, so, I mean, first of all, if I'm just trying to like write something down so I don't forget it, or if I'm trying to like, you know, capture a certain detail, I will write it, uh, you know, in my just notes app on my iPhone as I'm going, that allows me to be a little bit uh, more flexible and I'm not stuck to a computer, you know, like in real time. So for something like the Bucks protest, you know, I actually wrote my first uh, story, which wound up being on the front page of the Washington Post. I actually wrote that on my phone as we were standing during this, the, uh, the stakeout waiting for those guys to come out of the locker room. So um, but in terms of most of my stories that I write, I would write them, um, on, uh, you know, in Microsoft word and then put them into the system. But, you know, for me, like during a game, I'll take little notes here and there, but I do a lot of my process, unless it's a deadline file. Um, I do a lot of it just almost from memory, if that makes sense. And I actually do a lot of preparation for my writing while I'm walking. So I, you know, I try to walk, you know, at this point right now, I'm walking like eight miles a day, but usually I'm trying to walk at least four, like even before the pandemic. And so I will kind of compose mentally in my head in terms of where I want to go with my stories and then kind of, you know, write them out once I get back to the computer. So, um, you know, for me, having the pictures and the videos that I took there was actually really, really important because it transported me back to the moment. It allowed me to kind of feel what I was feeling and see what I was seeing. And so actually, you know, if I'm around newsworthy events, a lot of times I have my iPhone camera rolling, um, you know, as long as it's not like screwing things up, but especially for press conferences or, you know, pregame warmups or certain moments, big games, uh, you know, last second shots. I always have my camera going. So that way, if I need a, a reference point for what my particular angle look like, I'm able to go find that. That actually went, was really helpful, especially during something like the Lakers celebration where mm-hmm. uh, everything's happening so fast. I mean, LeBron's running around spraying people. Danny Green's running around. Marquise Morris is dropping F-bombs, you know, like it, it's a, you know, a pretty frantic uh, scenario. So the best way to relive it is to just keep your phone on the whole time. And then you can kind of like go back through it later and say, oh, yeah, that was cool. That was awesome. And um, so for me, the you know, this book could not have been written without technology. I mean, I, especially it wouldn't have been able to be written as fast because um, the phone aspect to it, the mobile and the multimedia aspect just made it so much more efficient. This episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Locker Room is the first social audio platform made for sports fans. The app is free to download, and once you're in, you can talk with me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time about your favorite team or sport. Evan and I will be hosting our room for Locker Lock on Cavs once this week, and yes, you can finally join in on the conversation you listen to here every day. Go download the free locker room app right now, currently available on all iOS devices. Plus, there's the Android beta. Be sure to create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the NBA group for the latest league updates. Follow at Rates or at AmNotEvan to be notified when our rooms go live. I know you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to be planning to live later this week, either Wednesday or Thursday evening. We can't wait to hear everyone's thoughts on the Cleveland Cavaliers. See you there. Locker room, changing the way we talk about sports. 
Now back to our conversation with Ben Golliver from the Washington Post. To talk a little bit more about the book, one of the things I know you covered in the book, and, and when we when I reached out to see if you about coming on, was talking about the, the how the the twenty fifteen Cavs Bulls series in the playoffs was almost a precursor to the Heat Lakers finals with with Jimmy and LeBron. What what, what do you, when you dive into that and talk about that, what what is that? What what sort of stood out about those two as as parallel moments in some way? So I actually wrote the first cover story that Jimmy Butler had it was, when I was at Sports Illustrated. It was actually my first cover story, too. And it was in kind of his breakout year um, when he was in Chicago, the most improved player season. And even at that time, which had come after the Bulls had faced the Heat in the playoffs previously, it was very clear to me that there was like a rivalry. Jimmy viewed LeBron as a target. And a lot of people do. You know, for example, you know, he was adopted. A lot of people know this. Uh, you know, by uh, his teammates' family when he was in high school uh, because he was homeless for a time when he was in high school. And his adoptive mother refused to let her other kids wear LeBron sneakers because it just wasn't allowed in her household because of uh, the LeBron versus Jimmy rivalry in the playoffs uh, for the Bulls and Heat series. So having that as the backstory and, you know, realizing that Jimmy was going to get another crack at LeBron at a time when a lot of those, you know, Cavs players were injured, right? I mean, it was a pretty undermanned team. You know, mm-hmm. d- during that portion of the playoffs in 2015, it kind of leveled the playing field. And it looked for a hot second like the Bulls were going to pull the upset. I mean, there were some like real panicky moments. People weren't really trusting David Blatt. Derek Rose hits that miracle three pointer, you know, banks it in. And it's like, wow, LeBron's, you know, homecoming is about to be ruined. And, you know, for Bulls fans where like they've just delighted in uh you know the previous playoff battles with the cavaliers back during the jordan era it was like hey you know it was this this comeback of excitement and confidence right we're going to take down lebron and of course that series completely turned the other direction and just twisted the knife so hard into jimmy i mean lebron hits that game winner after he scratches blatt's play right in jimmy's face um that shot winds up you know eventually leading to the the cavaliers eliminating the bulls Thibodeau getting fired, um, you know, uh, you know, a change of direction from the coaching staff with Fred Hoiberg, where like his personality and Jimmy's just really didn't uh, mesh. And then you fast forward a little bit and not too long later, Jimmy's getting traded out of Chicago. Right. So in a way, that shot kind of chased Jimmy off the bulls and and chased him away from like what he thought his career was going to be. Right. And kind of sent him on this odyssey to Minnesota and then Philly and then finally to Miami, where he really felt comfortable and at home. So, you know, Jimmy said it before the finals. He's like, look, you have to face the same test every single time until you pass it. That test is LeBron James. I mean, he said it's straightforward to everybody. He was completely honest about it. And we saw during the finals that, like, I mean, he was pulling energy from places that nobody else had at that point. I mean, everyone was exhausted in the bubble. And Jimmy's just taking his game to a different level, 40-point triple-double. You know, another big performance in Game 5 as well when, you know, everybody else probably would have cracked in that situation. And so I just thought that he was fueled in part by those earlier playoff matchups where LeBron had beat him. And I think he was also fueled by this idea that, like, he's such an internally motivated person. He wants to be the best that he can be. It's it's almost a cliche. You know, he's waking up for these 4 a.m. Uh, workout sessions. And you know, he, he's got this character kind of built up around him in terms of how dedicated he is to self-improvement. And with LeBron, he's he found his match, right? I mean, LeBron is just as psycho about working as anybody um, and, you know, keeps his body in pristine condition, was ready to rock as soon as the bubble took place. And 
ultimately was able to kind of outlast Jimmy Butler in the head-to-head duel. So to me, it's just been this amazing, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of a one-sided rivalry, right? Because Jimmy's looking up at LeBron and LeBron's saying, well, you know, there's a lot of people chasing me, Jimmy. KD's been chasing me. Steph's been chasing me. Uh, Kawhi Leonard's been chasing me. And so it's it's tough when you're the king and you're on that throne. But, you know, Jimmy was certainly fighting hard to grab it. Yeah, it's it, the their rivalry, so to speak, is sort of interesting, too, because I don't know if you remember the, the last LeBron year, right before Isaiah Thomas got traded, when Jimmy was on the Wolves, LeBron hit a game winner against the Wolves, like over Jimmy, where they had through the ball. It's like, it's a very interesting LeBron game winner, not just because of the shot. And that was a weird calf scene, but like he jumps past Isaiah Thomas into Jetty Osmond's arms. And then, Je- you know, Isaiah and the lot, this is right before the trade deadline. And uh, <laughs> Isaiah is like, uh, I don't want to be traded. It gets traded. But there was also the, some of the thought at the time and so I, some of the poking around, they're like, okay, maybe the Cavs will try to go trade for Jimmy. And, and that obviously didn't happen. He goes to Minnesota, then Philly, then, then it's by Miami. Um, I, I find Jimmy just like a fascinating foil for LeBron. And I find Jimmy just sort of like a guy that I, f- I it's, he obviously is sort of one of one in a lot of ways. Right. But I think if you're, if you're, I wonder if there's something teams like the Cavs, for instance, could learn from, from how much success a guy like Jimmy has had leading a team. And yes, you need the right coach. You need the right surrounding cast and all that stuff. But I wonder if there's just a lesson from that heat team that other teams could learn from. And it's obviously hard to really hard to replicate what Miami did and, and, and everything like that. And obviously they, for whatever reason, haven't quite hit those same peaks this year. But um, I, I wonder if there's something a team like Cleveland can kind of learn from, not like from the opposite side of the LeBron-Jimmy divide, where it's like, okay, you only get one LeBron usually. Like, they, they've had him twice. They that That's not happening again. I, I wonder what the other if there's something to learn from the other direction. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think for the, the Heat in specific in the bubble, like the bubble was for the grinders, right? So, I mean, I, I would see Eric Spolster out there almost every single day getting his, his miles and steps in in like 95 degree heat with the swampy conditions and he'd have his little t-shirt that said heat culture and it was almost like a self-caricature right it's just like this guy who's just unrelenting day in day out unfaced he's going to try to maximize his potential but i think it ultimately kind of comes back to culture right like their culture was a perfect fit for the bubble because they're trying to squeeze out every last drop from every player they've got whether it's you know superstars or uh you know veteran role players or whoever else it might be i mean the Heatles thing was such an, an anomaly from the last 10 years of Miami Heat basketball, which has really been a lot about kind of coaching up mediocre talent and trying to go on late season runs and surprise people and, and doing it with defense and discipline rather than like pure talent, you know, once LeBron was there. And, you know, I look back at that 2020 Heat team. I mean, they're, I would say, the least talented team to reach the finals in the last decade. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of really, really good and loaded teams making the finals. And I really wouldn't put Miami quite in that category. But I think the lesson for them is if you're everybody's on the same page, if everybody's bought into a team culture, if your star player like Jimmy doesn't really care who's scoring or who does, who gets the credit, if he's willing to defer to a Tyler Hero or a Duncan Robinson in certain moments of that playoff trip, um, if he's willing to kind of coexist with Bam and not have ego battles, like great things can happen. And I think that's a lesson that could you know apply for Cleveland or whoever else. I mean, I look at the Cavaliers, and, and to me, they've spent these last couple of years trying to form their post-LeBron identity, right? And they're really trying to figure out, like, who are the leadership personalities in that situation? And I ultimately think that's why they went to try to grab Coach Beeline, because it was like, hey, here's this kind of larger-than-life presence who's had a lot of success at the college level. He can sort of be the face of this program. 
And I think it became very, you know, clear very quickly that it wasn't going to be him. That's not really how it was going to work. And the players just like didn't really buy into that. Right. And so now it's a question of which of these young players are going to step into that role and take that mantle. And, and even a guy like Kyrie Irving, I remember when he was young in Cleveland and he was doing some USA basketball stuff. And I asked him like, you know, does he look forward to being a leader in the locker room? And, you know, he kind of was running from it at, at that point of his career. Tell me, look, I'm really young. There's a lot of older guys here. I'm learning from them. You know, he didn't want it to be quote unquote his team. And I think LeBron's return was absolutely exactly what Kyrie needed because otherwise I think that team would have sputtered for, for quite a while kind of directionless with uh, Kyrie as its main personality and best player. Um, and I think that that's the burden for players like Sexton Garland and this next group of Cavaliers players, like who is built to do that? You know, who can, um, you know, handle the burden, not only of being the best player, but of the franchise player. And, you know, do you have the talent to kind of back that up? I mean, to me, that's kind of an open question, but, uh, I, I've just watched the Cavaliers for the last five years or so. And, felt like they were trying to find the tone setter that Miami has and that certainly LeBron is obviously and I'm I'm not completely convinced they found it yet. Today's episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto part customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com Today's episode is also brought to you by Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball is in full swing, and you can track all of the action at Bet Online. This week has tons of sport action to go, including the, the a busy NBA slate, the ongoing baseball schedule. Um, you have MMA all weekend. You have a ton of great stuff. Get the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and our UFC slash MMA action. Before the next pitch, head over to BetOnline on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore as this is your chance to get in on the game as teams prep for their runs to the playoffs. Head to their website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus. That's right, a 50% welcome bonus with promo code locked on on your first deposit. That's locked on, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Yeah, I. I I don't think that's wrong. I, the Beeline thing is interesting because I just distinctly remember being at a media availability at their practice facility and, and Beeline had them like working on a different colored pennies and like talking about his Beeline ball to help with like shot. Like that was like a, 
a ball that they make sure you're shooting it like so it's it's circling the right way it was like a like a practice ball and i'm just like okay this is literally just going to drive kevin love insane and and you know it, it obviously did um that year was <laughs> disaster and they and look they've spun through they fired Ty Lue the after LeBron leaves. Larry Giroux almost is, has like his the joy sucked out of him, and then they bring in Beeline, and then, um, you know they have to fire him, and or he retires or whatever it is, and JB Bickerstaff is now in charge, and he's like at least a normal voice that the team sort of needs. Uh, ben, last thing on the bubble here before we just talk a couple little small Cavs things. Do you think a team, the teams like the Cavs and some of the others that did not go to the bubble for obvious health reasons that I think ultimately are obviously very very fair considering how what the pandemic has been and everything. Do you think they lost something by not being able to go? Is there something we can put on those teams that say, hey, like they didn't get to go and, and this it hurt them in this way? I would say no, um, because okay. when you look at the teams that were there who didn't really have much to compete for, I don't think they got a lot out of it, right? I mean, Washington went home real quick. They didn't bring a lot of their guys. You kind of got what, you know, you, you got out of it what you put into it. Brooklyn Nets had a few moments here and there, but like, you know, they were pretty much wasting their time. Um, the Pelicans got out of there as fast as humanly possible, right? And so, you know, I think when Steve Kerr came out and was like, you know, he didn't want the Warriors to be a part of it. He was almost saying, look, the uh, the risk isn't really worth the reward for our team at this point. I thought that was, you know, totally fair and accurate. It applied to the Warriors. It applied to the Timberwolves. And I would say it actually applied to the Cavaliers as well. Um, you know, it, I, I was of the opinion they should only bring 16 teams down in the first place. They, they wound up bringing 22 the NBA was proven right on that because they had a pretty exciting playoff chase to get into the, the West eighth seed. Um, but I, I think bringing even more than that would have just been diluting the quality of the games, you know, increasing the odds that there would be a health problem or a safety protocol type thing. And, um, you know, really just not for very much benefit. So, um, you know, I actually looked at Cleveland's quick start this year um, as almost like a, a bubble after effect, right? We saw a couple teams, the Knicks and the Cavaliers both come to mind where they had spent so much time off. They kind of came racing out of the gate this year and, you know, kind of surprised some teams. And I think they had some young players who were just chomping at the bit, ready to go. And after not playing since March, um, now it's hard to sustain that momentum once everybody else is getting back up to speed. And I think that's why you've seen Cleveland, you know, fall back to earth a little bit. Um, but I don't think that there needs to be any regrets from that side. You know, one team that was really vocal was the Atlanta Hawks about not getting their chance to play in the bubble. And, you know, you look back at their offseason, they changed so many key pieces. Like, how helpful would it have even been? You know, like they, they go out and grab Bogdan, Gallinari. Uh, there was the Rondo experiment for a little bit. Um, I'm not sure that they would have taken a ton from that bubble experience that would have applied to this year. So that's just my two cents. I'm sure there are some people within the Cavs organization who feel differently, who would have just liked to have a little bit more of a look at some of the younger prospects and, and just treat it like a summer league. And that's fine too, but I don't think it was some big missed opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. So but a couple of Cavs things here. What do you just think of the team as, as they exist now? I don't really honestly know what to make of them. I don't know where they're going. I think I'm probably lower on Sexton than his his fans which maybe that's no big surprise but um you know <laughs> yeah I, I, uh, uh, yeah, yeah sex, I, I sex and stuff of, is oof, it's, yeah, a so it's, it's, it's a lot it's a lot where are you on sexton because i feel like um it's it's one of those things where it's almost like his backers are trying to speak it into existence you know what i mean it's yeah. like all right if we're through force of will we can make this guy into a franchise point guard and i just haven't really seen that so I think there's stuff he does. I think the scoring is like 
very interesting. I all the work ethic stuff you that gets like talked about him, I think is ultimately really like the guy just sort of like doesn't like to do anything else but like work and play basketball. There's something to that. Um, I think the passing stuff is just like unavoidably a problem. Like I, I when he's been out and it's just Darius Garland and then whatever other starting five they're going to throw out there because of all the injuries they've had. The ball, I think, just the tape shows that the ball moves better. I think Darius has also just hit a level as a passer and as a as a player this year that is really interesting. Um, I think the thing with Sexton that I, I come back to is like, can you get to a point with him where you can set him up for a lot of easy reads? He can make simple reads out of the pick and roll and he can do stuff off ball. Like cut. I don't think he, like he, he's got some intrigue to me as a cutter that they don't really use a lot. Their offense becomes very stagnant and he doesn't move a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's something there. I think he's, he's got to do more stuff off ball and he has to figure out how to play in defense. I don't, I think he's interesting, but I don't know if like he's the guy of this group. I think honestly, like, I think there's a really strong argument that if you were to say rank him, Okor and Garland in terms of how you would bank out their future impact is going to be and how how good of player that could be, he might be third on that list. Like I think like Okor's def- his offense is is a problem, but his defense has been outrageous, and Garland has. Uh, is a much more, I think, complete offensive player in a lot of ways. But I think he's good, but I think he's, I think pushing him into something he's not is is part of the issue here. And then also, like, I, I don't know what to make of the repeated stuff where, like, it happened his rookie year, and then it just, it happened uh, on Sunday. There was an athletic story about this where, like, a lot of players just get very frustrated with him. And that's, that's tough. And it's, I am both empath- empathetic to him that that's, like, not totally fair to him to kind of air things out that way. But it's also, like, I watch the games and, like, th- this isn't totally surprising to me. Oh, that's how I feel watching them play. I mean, I'm frustrated right there with his teammates. I'll put it that way. Um, no, I, I like the Okoro pick for them. I thought it was smart in terms of a timeline issue and just not trying to rush to take, you know, an older, more developed prospect. I thought the decision, like, you know, it was two very clear options, like uh, Abi Toppin or Okoro, right? And, like, philosophically, I like the idea of, you know, betting on the upside, betting on the defensive complement. Um, you know, to your scoring guards and just hoping that that guy could come along enough offensively to be a big time player. So I like that decision a lot. Um, Garland, you know, he's interesting for sure. I do think that at some point they're going to have to pick between him and Sexton. I just don't think that they complement each other well enough to be like a high level backcourt duo. Um, it reminds So, I mean, Sexton's better than Moutier. It reminds me a little bit of the decisions that Denver was facing early in the careers between Murray and, and Moutier, where it was kind of like, well, there's not room here for both these guys to be their best selves. So we're going to have to pick one trust that that guy's going to fully develop and we're just going to have to move forward. And the tricky part is like Garland's probably not as good as Murray and Sexton's better than Moutier. So that decision just becomes even more difficult and you're going to want to delay it as far as possible, um, which, you know, in the short term is going to come with a cost. I've been interested in like what they will do if they won the top pick or if they jumped up in the draft lottery. Um, how much discussion have you given to that? I, I think you take Cade and you just don't worry about it. Like I, I think one of the biggest issues with the sex line backcourt is like they're both small. Like if Sexton was Zach Levine size, I could like talk. It'd be easier for me to talk myself into some of this, right? Like if if one of them was just bigger, you can talk yourself into a little bit more. They they're missing that big playmaker. Um, that they, like, I think all the really good teams have in some way, right? Like, even if it's, like, Donovan Mitchell's a little bit bigger than Comsex, and Zach Levine is, you know, for, depending on how good you think he is, and I know sometimes you're like, eh, what are we doing here? But he uh, he's bigger, and, like, Kate Cunningham, if you could get it number him at number one, I just sort of think you worry about it later. Like, I don't think anyone in this team is good enough to, like, insulate you from taking someone that could be the by far the best player on your team. I, I think if you approach the draft in a way that's, like, 
these guys are so we're so locked into these guys. I think that that would be a roster building mistake. Um, but I also like I don't know what Kobe Altman thinks about anything. I've heard him talk two times in the last year, and when he does, it's like you don't really get a lot out of him. So I don't quite even know what the organization thinks about a lot of stuff a lot of the time. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, I think it would be Cade's team from day one. Like, if they have the number one overall pick and they draft Cade, I think that that probably would lead to a Sexton trade, and you'd be going forward with Garland, Cade, and Okoro. That's a pretty nice group, you know. It's, it, you got Jared Allen at the, at the five. Um, I thought that was a nice move for them as well this year. It was kind of savvy and smart to sneak into that one. Um, so, you know, there's been things that I like. I, I Just to me, they're still missing that foundational piece. If they got it with Cade, I think that they would be able to retool this thing pretty quickly and, and get to a more logical, more efficient overall offense than they've had here recently. Totally agree with you on the size. I think a lot of people want to compare those guys to maybe like Dame and CJ. Again, I think both of Portland's guards are like far more, you know, overall valuable offensive players than the ceilings on, on the Cavs guards. And if, you know, Dame and CJ have had kind of spotty success in terms of deep playoff runs, I mean, they, they've made the Western Conference Finals once. And they've made the playoffs like seven years in a row. But, you know, if you're doing kind of a poor man's version of that, I don't know exactly where that gets you either. So that's why I keep coming back to this idea. They're going to have to choose eventually. The choice gets a lot easier if you have the top pick this year, for sure. Yeah. I also just think, I think, I truly am just, I think Garland's hit something really interesting. Um, the the type of threes he's taking, the little deeper threes, if they can, if he can actually hit those and he looks like he might be able to do a decent clip, I think that can kind of bend the def- opposing defense interesting where I be like Sexton just doesn't have that in, in his bag. Um Ben, last thing, Kevin Love. If if I if Dan Gilbert cuts the check tomorrow and hires you to run the Cavs, what do you do with Kevin Love? What do you what are you doing with that situation? I'm pretty much doing what Detroit did with uh Blake Griffin, you know, and it's like, all right, let's see. Let's see what the Lakers, the Heat, and the Nets have in, in way of interest of, you know, yet another gravy trainer. You know, all the destination markets that are always trying to scoop up these veterans and hope for turnarounds. Um, and I'm just trying to save as much money as possible. Uh, I, I don't really – I mean, it's not like it's a response to that, that silly, like, viral clip that was going around or anything else. I just think that sometimes when you guys – you have guys on contracts that are that big who have had success and you've got just a completely different identity kind of building here – um, with the younger group, it's better to just kind of, it's almost like addition by subtraction. And, yeah. you know, I felt the same way about the Andre Drummond thing. The only surprise there to me was they couldn't get more cash savings on that, you know, because it was clear he was going to have some really interested people, um, you know, in terms of his services. And, you know, for LaMarcus to give back a bunch of the Spurs and for, um, you know, Blake to give a ton of money back to the Pistons, I thought somehow Cleveland would be able to figure that out and, and have a same deal with Drummond. But, that's the the approach I would take with Love. I mean, to me, I think he's basically untradeable unless you're taking back an even worse contract. And I don't think you want to do that at all. I think you want to keep these decks pretty clean if you can. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just think it's it's probably time to go a different direction. Last, last thing, J.B. Bickerstaff, good coach, average coach, bad coach. What do you think? Um, I think it's still a little bit to be determined. I was really impressed with how they came out of the gate, though. You know, I'll be honest, like I... I thought that they were going to be even worse than their record has been this year. And he had them ready to go on a really tough turnaround, you know, in terms of how short training camp was. And I thought they were playing really hard, pretty together and and pretty solid on defense, you know, out of the gate. Now, um, you know, sustaining that proved to be challenging, like I mentioned earlier, but uh, I, I think he's solid. You know, I wouldn't have him, you know, there's probably there's at least 15 coaches who are better than him, but I don't view him as like one of the worst coaches in the league by any stretch. And, um, I think it's mostly an incomplete grade for him. 
the, yeah. the pieces that he have has had to work with right now don't fit. So he's he's gonna have to get some better talent, and they're gonna have to find a way to kind of upgrade the roster before we're really diving too deep into into what he's doing. But I like his personality um, in general, and I think that the big key is like if you're comparing him to Beeline or Blatt, you know, obviously you know, he's gonna be above those guys. And if you're comparing him to Ty Lue, well, he's probably gonna be behind Ty Lue in terms of experience and accomplishments and. Uh, you know, maybe even, you know, uh, communication ability and, and a few other ca- uh, categories. But by the uh, by the standard of Cleveland Cavaliers coaches here over the last 10 years, I think he's doing OK, right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's not gotten fired and there's not been like a mutiny. And again, they had four coaches in uh, like two seasons. So I think a guy that is like at least relates to the players and, and is going to establish a certain level of something, um, you know, isn't the worst thing in the world. Like I, I imagine if this team was still coached by John Beeline, I think uh it would, it would be an absolute disaster. Again, the book is Bubble Ball. Inside the NBA's Fight to Save the Seasons by Ben Golliver from Abrams Press. It's uh, you're, If you're listening to this on May 4th when this episode comes out, uh, it's out. And you should go absolutely go buy the book. Um, I'm going to, once I get a chance, I'm going to finish it as fast as I possibly can. And it's great. And Ben's work at the Washington Post and elsewhere is absolutely amazing. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. One last thing before we get out of here. Get all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes with the Locked On Today podcast. Host Peter Bukowski updates you on the latest news in every major sport with the help of our local experts. Follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Odyssey, by the way, is spelled A-U-D-A-C-Y.